All right. We're in Genesis 1, Genesis 1, 14 to 25. It's the next two and a half days of creation. I say two and a half because we will look at the creation of man and woman uh, next week, which is also on the sixth day. Let's read it together, have some time to meditate and pray, and then we'll pray. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be light in the let and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth, and it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on, on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let the birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and, live, and every living creature that moves with, with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply, fill the waters in the seas and let the birds multiply on earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creature according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that, creep, everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Father, who has known your mind to give you counsel? Who are we but creatures that you created, that you gave breath to? And it's because of your grace that this morning we woke up breathing. It's because of your grace that we sit here today. It's because of your grace that we can enjoy creation that surrounds us. As we think, Lord, of the filling of the earth and your mind, your wisdom, your intellect, as we think of the moon and the stars and the sun and the birds of the air and the fish of the sea and the creatures that walk upon the earth, as we think of their vastness, Lord, their uniqueness. Lord, would it lead us to all the more worship you? Would we see that within the creation, it declares that there is 
there is a creator. And Lord, you are so gracious in that you have made yourself known through your word. Father, we need humility this morning. We need it every morning. We need humility to come before your word and be moved. To not be proud or arrogant in the way we approach your word. So Lord, give us grace. Give us grace to hear your word and grace to understand. Let this be for your glory and for your name's sake. In Jesus' name, amen. Over the past few weeks, we've covered some pretty weighty topics. We've looked at God in his fullness as the holy, unique, all-sufficient, self-existent, eternal God who is three in one. And we have unpacked the Trinity and how the scriptures use this name God and attributes that to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, declaring that God is solely unique. We've looked at his might, his strength, his rulership, that in him saying, speaking forth, when God said, things happen. And the whole of scripture is about what God has said. And we should base our life off what God has said. And we should interpret our feelings and emotions through what God has said and not the other way around. Now, I think it would be good as we continue on in these next few days of creation to clarify a few things. Firstly, I want to clarify what I mean about intellect. Uh, Over the last couple of weeks, I've said that intellect can be a hindrance to our understanding of creation. Now, let me clarify that because we have intellectual people around us. We have bright people in the church. What do I mean by intellect? can be a hindrance for our understanding of God and creation. Well, intellect without wisdom can be a hindrance. Intellect without wisdom can be a hindrance in that wisdom, according to the scripture, is the fear of the Lord. Now, if we have intellect with the fear of the Lord, that means all our grand studies of beauty, all our studies of creation, our studies of the universe will lead us where to God. But if we study the world without wisdom, without the fear of the Lord, where does our intellect lead us? Maybe to ourselves, maybe to nothing. So when we say intellect can be a hindrance, intellect without the Holy Spirit revealing truth, revealing the gospel, revealing Christ, will always lead to an unestablished worldview will always lead to an empty worldview, and a, a worldview that is lacking something. And of course, the something it's lacking is God, the one who created all things. So in our intellect, with wisdom, the fear of the Lord, let us go forth and study the world, that it may draw our hearts to ponder God all the more and draw our hearts to worship him and be be intrigued by more of his splendor and his uniqueness and his unlimited mind. We need in the church, and we have, but we need in the church more Christian scientists. We need more Christian astrophysicists. I don't even know what they do. I just like saying it. 
We need in the church more teachers in our schools that teach science. We need in the church more doctors. We need in the church many people of all different types of intellect, whether it's the practical side of things or the studying in intense research, working out theories and whether they have any grounds in the scripture. So now that we've clarified that, what that brings us to is this word I mentioned last week, apologetics. Now, apologetics, as simply as I can say it, is defending the faith with sound arguments. Apologetics are a great thing. I, I like apologetics. I listen to many apologists. What I find hard about apologetics is when they don't get to the gospel. So the apologetics needs to always lead to the gospel. So we need intellectual guys like John Lennox, if you've heard of him, who study science and creation and come up with sound arguments with the scriptures about how God is there and present and working in the midst of this world. And we need it to lead to Christ and how Christ saves us. And only through Christ is there salvation. Apologetics should always land in the place of Jesus and his, him being the only means for salvation. Let's look at Romans 1. If you think about Paul the Apostle and how he went about his evangelism, he, with sound arguments, argued for the relevance of God and one God and salvation through Jesus alone. If we look at Acts 17, we will see him arguing with the Ephesians and he says to the Ephesians, you worship many gods and you have a statue to an unknown God. So let me tell you about the unknown God who created all things and through him all things exist. Well, here's one of his other arguments in Romans 1, Romans 1, 19 to 23. Paul is using an apologetic style of evangelism. He's, he's defending the faith and he's defending the faith by saying this. He says, for what can be known about God is plain to them. Because God has shown it to them. Okay, so he starts off by saying God is plain to all people. God has shown it to them. And this is how he has shown them in verse 20. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so they are without excuse. What we see in creation as we have studied the last... Uh, last few weeks, the last three weeks in Genesis 1, is that the world and it's, the way it looks, the way it functions, the way it, it, it works in its uniqueness, in its creative beauty, in its power, clearly says that there is a God who is powerful. There is a God who is beautiful. It shows off his invisible attributes. No one has ever seen God, the scripture says. But we have seen the world that he created. And this world that he has created is stunningly beautiful and it has mighty powers and unique creations. And what does it show us? Himself. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, his godness or otherness. And then he says at the end of verse 20, so you... Mankind, you humankind, you all people are without excuse. 
What are we without excuse for? We're without excuse for not bowing our knee to him. For not saying, you, God, alone are God. I will live according to your law. I will follow you all the days of my life. I will love you with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength. You, mankind, are without excuse because you have seen the creation that God has made. And in verse 21, he goes on to say, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men, birds, animals, and creeping things. What we see is that the intellect of the world, those who claim to be wise, actually are fools and have exchanged the glory of God this infinite God who has displayed all around, or all around us to worship the mere creation. So intellect, without wisdom, without God's wisdom, the fear of the Lord leads to a worship of the creation rather than the creator. All right, we've got atheists who don't believe they worship anything, right? But really they worship self. They worship self. And selfism really is the greatest movement of our time. We talk so much about self-esteem. It's all within you. You have enough, if you just have enough self-esteem, if you just encourage yourself enough, if you just speak good things about yourself, you will be able to do whatever you want to do. I love what MacArthur says. Self-esteem is the greatest doctrine of the devil. We need less self-esteem. We need more of God in our worldview. So maybe there's many people today who claim more than, if we look at the census data, I don't know if you like that stuff, I find it interesting. 2011, there was like 75% of people that said they were Christian. In the 2016 one, way less. I didn't check the stats, but way less. There was that movement that went around, say no religion on your form. Don't just get sucked into saying, oh, my parents took me to Catholic church, I'm a Christian, or an Anglican church. Say no religion. More and more people are saying they're not religious people or they don't follow a God. In other words, they do follow a God, they worship themselves. They've exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men, the image in the mirror. They satisfy themselves with theories. They satisfy themselves with thinking that they've got enough strength, enough encouragement in themselves. I love this story of Isaac Newton. It's one of my favorite illustrations when I'm out talking to someone and they bring up creation. Isaac Newton was there and he loved the solar system. He loved studying the solar system, the idea of the planets moving around the sun. And he had this model that as he turned the crank on the model, it had all these cogs inside that would move the planets around the sun in its correct order. And one day as he was studying this model with intensity and he's winding it and he's watching the planets move in their rotation, a friend, a colleague came in and was looking at Newton study this model. And he said to him, oh, that's an amazing model. Who created that for you? Who made that? 
And without even looking up from the model, Isaac Newton said, nobody. And his friend, his colleague, who was an intellectual man, said, that's absurd. That's absurd. There's technical pieces to that model. There's cogs and movement happening. Someone with intellect. And as he was saying the very words, he paused and realized Isaac Newton's point. That this man could believe that this image of the solar system, this model of the solar system needed to be created, but he couldn't grasp or didn't want to believe that the solar system itself needed creating. Tell me that's not foolishness. That you would look at a model of the very thing and say, oh, it must have been created. But you can't look at the universe itself with far more complexities, with far more layers of beauty, with far more power and say, it's an accident. As Romans 1 puts it, clearly perceived. Clearly perceived. His eternal nature, clearly perceived. His invisible attributes are clearly perceived. When we go out and defend the faith, when we go and proclaim the gospel to people, evangelism, it's a great practice in our lives. And people start to bring up creation. We don't have to stumble over our words. We don't have to feel like we're the ones that have to defend our position. We have evidence. We have clear evidence and it's all around us. Let them stumble over their words. Let them defend their position because our God needs no defending. All right, that was the sermon on Romans 1, so let's move into this passage. The next two and a half days of creation, we're drawn all the more to this point, this point that creation reveals the uniqueness of God, the power of God, the might of God, yet also what we see in him, it reveals something new. I I, I think it reveals something new as we unpack it. It reveals the mind of God. So last week we looked at God said and the power of God's word. Week before we looked at God and his eternal nature, that he is self-existent and eternal. Now let's focus in on God's mind, the mind of God the complexities that come from his mind, the creativity that is brought from his mind. And as we unpack these few days, we see the sun and the moon and the stars. So we get in the solar system that we just spoke about and the mystery that is around that, the complexities and power and beauty that is in that. And then we have a a different beauty in the creation of the birds of the air and the fish of the sea. Once again, more varieties more beauty, some with power, some with weakness, some with color, some with blandness. And then the creation of animals, once again, a vast, vast variety of animals. What we see in these next few days is is a God whose mind has no limits. And as we look out at creation, whether you're looking at space or looking at the birds of the air or the fish of the sea or the animals in the wilderness, you must get to a place where you go, what mind has God got? How infinite are his designs? So verse 14 says, and God said, that's that phrase again, that when God speaks, things happen 
Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. So God has already created light. We saw that on the first day. In the first three days, we see God form things. He formed light. He, he named it day and he named darkness night. And now in day four, he fills it. He gives it a form in the image of the sun and the moon and later in this same few verses, the stars. As we are drawn to think of the sun, what does it reveal to us about the mind of God? What does it reveal to us not only about the mind of God, but also about the attributes and characteristics of God? The sun is so powerful that we can't get anywhere near it. That we create machines that can go there that never come back. The sun is so powerful that even in its dullest state, when you stare at it, your eyes start to struggle. When we look at the, the, the sun on its own and we look at just one aspect of God's creation, this powerful ball of fire, if that's what it is, I could be wrong, I didn't study it, and we see this might and this beauty, what, how big is God? How powerful and mighty is God? as we think that he puts it in the center of the solar system and everything else surrounds it and we have life because of it and would not have it if the, if the sun was not there. How complex is God? Yet then in his creative mind, he then creates a lesser light, the moon. And some would like to argue that it isn't a light because it reflects the sun, so clearly the Genesis 1 isn't truthful. Well, that's rubbish. Because Genesis 1 is writing to a particular type of people. They're writing to the Hebrews, and God speaks in a way that they could understand. So when he speaks of a lesser light, that's what they see. The Israelites didn't have all our technology to go forth and study the universe. They had their eyes and what their eyes could see. So when God says there is a lesser light in the sky, that is what they see. That is what they understand. It's the same when it comes down to the stars. Scientists would say, well, it's not true because the stars are bigger than our sun. And the scriptures just say they're lesser lights. What? Once again, God is a personal God writing to people and people with just their eyes see that the stars are small. So in God's divine plan and poetic nature, he writes according to the people that will read it. When you look up at the sky, you don't think the stars are bigger than our sun. Well, you don't think that the moon is reflecting off the sun, you just... See, it's got its own light. So God creates the beauty of the moon and the beauty of the sun, the dullness of the moon and the brightness of the sun, the might of the sun. Isn't it incredible to think if that is his creation, what is he? Who is he? And he gives them for us for a reason and they're there for the signs and for seasons, and for days, and for years. God gives function and purpose to the sun and the moon, and we know that the sun and the moon, without them, we would have all sorts of chaos in our 
climates. We know that by the moving of the solar system that we have different seasons of hot and cold and, and within the different seasons we have different beauties. I love living in this part of Australia. We get different climates, different experiences. I love the feeling of winter and the warmth of summer. I love the extended days in summer for barbecues at the beach and sport and things that create fellowship. When we look at the beauty of the signs and for seasons and for days and for years, we see that the sun does all that God ordered it to do. In its rising and its setting, it does exactly what God wanted it to do and it repeats it over and over again without fail. And we see in, in this crazy story of Joshua with the Israelites needing extra time to fight a war that when Joshua prays, God holds the sun still for him. Who's in control of the sun? God. As we look at this, this passage here on the sun, the moon, and the stars, we see it almost repeats itself again. From verse 16, it says, And God made the two greater lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the, 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 the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heaven to give the light to the earth to rule over the day and to rule over the night. We're seeing a repetition and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. There was evening and there was morning the fourth day. We see very clearly, for some reason, there was a repetition here. And the greatest, the, probably the, the, the main reason we, we can come up with or our understanding of why did Moses or why did God inspire Moses to repeat, repeat this phrase? Well, the sun was one of the most common deities of the time. The sun by day and the moon by night was a great deity of the time. So for Moses writing to the Israelites, it was a great need to correct their understanding. And in repeating over and over again that God creates this greater light and the lesser light, and then when we look at Joshua, that God stops the sun in its tracks, we see that the sun has no deity. The sun is a creation. And his creator is God, and God commands it to do as it ought. It's a correction on the deity of the sun and the moon. I like what Matthew Henry says in one of his commentaries. The lights of heaven are made to serve us. They do it faithfully and shine in their season without fail. But we are set as lights in this world to serve God. And do we in like manner and answer the end of, it, manner and answer the end of it, our creation? No, we do not. Our light does not shine before God as his light shines before us. We burn our master's candle, but do, but do not mind our master's work. That's a strong little challenge there as Matthew Henry ponders the work of the sun. It is the master's candle. I like that idea. That does the work of God day in and day out without fail. Yet we are called to be lights of the world. Do we shine forth as the sun does? 
Jeremiah also says in 31:35, thus says the Lord who gives the sun for light by day and fixed order of the moon and stars by, for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. As we have done all the way through and we'll continue through to in this sermon and unpack that the Old Testament writers and the New Testament writers affirm Genesis 1, that God is the creator. That God in his infinite mind, infinite intellect creates different types of beauties, different types of strength, different types of things that function in a way that draw us to him. In verse 20, we move from the sun and the moon and we go to the next day of creation, day five. And he's creating and filling the seas and the air. So we see on, on day two, we see very clearly that he created, he formed the seas and, and formed the heavens. He set an expanse apart between uh, the sea and, the, and the, the heavens, which was the sky. And he now fills them. And it says, let, the swar- let waters swarm with swarms of living creatures. Let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heaven. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Do we need more proof of God? If we need more proof of God, let's look at the other creation that he breathed life into. So far up until this point, God has just formed masses or functions uh, out of of objects or things. Now we see life, life given to animals in the air and animals in the sea. Look at this word swarms, swarms of living creatures, like masses. Do you know them all? I think Genesis 1 really puts us in the place of the back end of Job, Job 38 to 41, which we're going to read a few phrases from in a moment. But do you know them all? Do you know all the birds that are out there? Do you know all the fish in the sea, all the creatures? As we think of the, the ocean, most of which, that is not disco- uh, which is undiscovered, Yet we, in our day and age, can sit on our couch and watch documentary after documentary and be in awe of creation with the awe lead us to the creator. Would the awe lead us to question, how, what is his mind? That he can create birds with wings and birds with wings that can't fly. We're birds that run quicker than horses, as Job tells us of the ostrich. This is the God that we worship. We live in an age where we get to watch these things on TV, which is a blessing, but it's also a curse because we don't discover anymore. We don't get to go out and discover for ourselves what's out there exploring an unknown mystery and making it known. As we think of all the different kinds of colours, all the different kinds of 
of, of creatures, the ones that crawl along the ground of the ocean, the ones that swim at great speeds, the ones that can stay underwater and the ones that have to come up for air. What is God? Who is God? What is his mind? Do you understand him? As he says to Job, See, God's comfort to Job, God's comfort to Job is that Job went through immense suffering, deep, deep pain in his life. He had everything stripped away from him. And as Job questioned and asked God, God's answer to him was, do you trust me, pretty much, in a very long three chapters. And he says it by saying, do you trust me? Do you believe that I am the God who is in control? Let me just point to you a few, a few points of, of focusing on the birds and, and, and the fish. In, in Job 39, verse 13, the wings of the ostrich were proud, pr- wave proudly, but they are, but they, but are they the pigeons and plumage of love? For she leaves her eggs to the earth and lets them be wandered warmed on the ground, forgetting that a foot may crush them, that the wild beast may trample them. She deals cruelly with her young, as if they are not hers, though her labor be in vain, yet she has no fear, because God made her forget wisdom and gave her no share in understanding. When she arouses herself to flee, flee, she laughs at the horse and his rider. What God does in speaking to Job is he asks him questions. Do you understand this? Do you understand my creation? Do you know about this ostrich? Do you understand why the ostrich would just leave her eggs and treat her young uh, unfairly? He doesn't even answer them to say that I do. Job just knows. At the end, Job says, I have spoken of things too wonderful for me, things that I cannot understand. And he pleads for God to forgive him. Twenty-six and tw- uh, twenty-six to thirty also says, "Is it by your understanding?" Once again, God speaking to Job. Is it by your understanding, O man, that the hawks soar and spread their wings towards towards the south? Is it at your command that the eagle mounts up and makes its nest on high on the rocks it dwells and makes its home on the rocky cr- uh, crag and stronghold? From there he spies out the prey. His eyes behold it from far away. His young ones suck up blood where the slain are. There he is. Do you understand the mystery of the hawk, he says? To Job, this man who has been through such suffering, he comforts Job by saying, trust me. Trust my mind. I created these things and I watch over them. I know them. I love Job 12, 7, but ask the beasts, they will teach you. The birds of the heaven, they will tell you. Or the brushes of the earth, they will teach you. And the, sea of, and the fish of the sea will declare to you. Who among all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this? In his hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. Do you know the mind of God? 
In verse 22, it says, God blessed, God blessed them and saying to the birds of the air and the fish of the sea, be multiply, be fruitful and multiply, fill the waters of the sea and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. The blessing God gives to the birds of the air and the fish of the sea is to go forth and multiply. It will bring God glory in multiplying and being fruitful and doing what they were meant to do and, and spread across the air and the sea. This is the same blessing God gives to man in his creation. Yet man has a greater, bless, a greater blessing in that he is there to go and multiply, to do, to bear the image of, of God. We're going to look at that next week. It's a great theme of the early stages of Genesis, this idea of being fruitful and multiplying and how that feeds into the new life in Christ. But after the filling of the air and the sea, he goes on to fill the earth. And God said, let the earth bear forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Look at the phrase, according to their kinds. And how many times it's repeated. Three times here. The beasts of the field according to their kinds. The livestock according to, livestock according to their kind. And the creeping and the, the thing, everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. Think of the vastness of creation. From insects to livestock to the wild animals to pets. We see so clearly in these last few days a God who is of great creative power, great beauty, and great creativity. A God whose mind is beyond anything we can comprehend. Once again, he questions Job. Do you understand the animals that creep along the ground? In verse 39, he says, Can you hunt the prey for young lions or satisfy the appetite of the lions when they crouch in their dens or lie in the weight in the thicket? who provides for the ravens its prey when its young ones cry for help. We see God just putting forth to his people, to Job, to us, do you comprehend these things? I love the one that says, do you know where the mountain goat gives birth? Nope. No idea. Probably in the mountains, I would assume. But he does. He doesn't only create, he didn't only create the moon and the stars, he didn't only create the birds and the fish, he didn't only create the livestock and the creeping things, he creates them and cares for them. He creates them and purposes them. He creates them and gives them function. He knows all things and he's still providing for all things. I point to it every week at the moment, but the sparrows are not two sparrows sold for a penny, yet God knows when one of them falls to the ground. He knows. He feeds the insignificant. He provides for them. I just think this Genesis 1 passage is incredible to ponder the mind of God.
Yet where does the study of the mind of God lead us? I want to turn to Corinthians 1, 20, 1, uh, 1 Corinthians 1, 20 to 25. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolishness, made the foolish, the, sorry, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand a sign, Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God for the foolishness of God is wiser than man and the weakness of God is stronger than man. We have this humbling passage in Corinthians that sort of puts us in the place of Job of going, these things are too wonderful for me. These things are too grand for me to understand. I love the questions. Where is the wise one? Well, if you are wise and you want to put up your hand, now explain to me everything about creation. Answer all the questions that God asks Job in, in Job 38, 39, and 40, and 41. Answer them all if you are wise. Yet the Christian, the Christian who is wise in Christ Jesus, humbly says like Job, these things are too wonderful for me. I will put my trust in you. And this is how we get to the gospel in our teaching or defending of the faith, our apologetics. Would we see that this story is one coherent message all the way through that points people to God? That even when someone comes at us with some grand argument of creation being made from something other than God, we need not to worry. We need not to threat. We need not to stumble over our words, but rather just point to what's around us. And say, explain to me this. Explain to me the moon and the stars. Explain to me why they rise and go down. Explain to me the seasons. Explain to me day after day why days come and days go and years come and years go. Explain to me the hawk in the sky and the fish of the sea. Explain to me how the bear gets its food. Explain to me how the young lion survives or the ostrich doesn't kill its young. Explain to me that. And when you can't explain to me that, let me then tell you about Jesus who explains it all. That there is a God who cares for us. There is a God who created us. There is a God who fashioned this world for his glory and made for himself a people for his glory. And that people rebelled. So we preach Christ crucified. Because those people who rebelled are only saved through the crucified Christ. And that crucified Christ is a stumbling block to the Jews, the religious, and folly 
to the intellect of this age. They would say it's foolishness that one man could die and save all. It's foolishness. Yet when the Spirit of God comes upon you, you see with clear, clear eyes and the veil is lifted up and the fear of the Lord is put in you and you say, it is right, it is true, and it makes total sense that only God, an infinitely worthy God, could create all that we see and experience and all the function that moves among us. Let me finish with Romans 11, this great praise to God. As Romans 8, 9, 10 expands some of the most crazy thoughts of God's, God's wisdom, Paul just finishes in this way, and I feel like it's a great response. When you finish trying to wrap your head around creation, to just say, oh, the depth of riches and wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgment. How inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of God? Who or who has given him counsel? Or who has given him a gift that he should repay? For from him and through him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. That is the way you finish when you study Genesis 1. Who has known the mind of God? Who has known the mind of God? Who has been his counsellor? Would we, as his people, have the wisdom and the intellect, wisdom with intellect, the fear of the Lord, so that when people come and question us, we will defend them by pointing them to the very thing that surrounds us and say, he's there, he's present. And then get to Christ and Christ crucified. Christ crucified. Let's pray. Father, what is your beauty? We see beauty all around us and often we miss your beauty. We forget to study your beauty and your worth. So Lord, I pray that from our understanding of Genesis 1, as we continue to understand and unpack what our role is through Genesis 2, would we comprehend more of your glory in order to be a worthy image bearer? And we are worthy only through Christ, him crucified. So, Lord, I pray that with the power of your Holy Spirit, 
we would go forth and, and bear your image to this world and have confidence, Lord, total confidence in your might, confidence in your wisdom, confidence in your word that reveals who you are and what you have done. But Lord, we will not be the ones scrambling for a defense. Lord, we have a defense. It's you and you defend yourself. Let us point them to Christ, the only means of salvation, that without whom we have no way to enter into heaven, without whom we have no way of being your children, no way of seeing the new heavens and the new earth. So, Lord, we thank you for Christ crucified, our Saviour and Redeemer, who will one day present us to you without spot or wrinkle or blemish. All glory be to you. In Jesus' name, amen.